Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. So my friend, let me pose a question. Say we take, in this corner, William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, and in this corner, Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO <laughs> pioneer, and we right. say, guys, talk to us. I wonder what's going to happen. I think they're going to talk a lot. <laughs> I think they will just talk to each other, and yeah. I could just be the ringmaster and stop every 10 minutes for commercials and announcements and stuff like that. I predict, and I have no idea what's going to happen when we get to them on the show, I kind of predict that it's going to be a cakewalk. These guys you know, you have so much right. to say. Yeah. They have so much to say on these subjects. All I have to do is sit back, relax, and let them go on. In fact... We're going to spend an evening right now on the PowerCast with Bill Burns of UFO Magazine, nuclear physicist and UFO researcher, some say the father of modern ufology, Stanton T. Friedman on the PowerCast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. So, Stan, before we start with some very interesting material about Roswell, I wanted to ask you about this news story that came over the wires a few days ago regarding a British UFO study that concluded yeah. UFOs, there was nothing to them. One of these studies that come out every few years. What can you tell us about it? Well, it was big, over 400 pages. It uh, Part of it was classified secret, which is... Apparently, they said, because of radar information about the British Isles. They seem to have gathered a group of uh, noisy negativists, as I call them, to write up anything negative they could think about and to buy into all the old, long-discredited explanations for UFOs as conventional phenomena. And they also, you know, it's strange. What I've read about it, which is several different articles and a brief summary in a couple of places, indicates that... The guys who did this really didn't know a heck of a lot. Uh, for example, it is noted that the uh, this is the first report since the Condon report, which is the only large-scale government-funded UFO study to be published in English. Now, 
the biggest study covering more than 20 times as many cases as the common people covered was Project Blue Book Special Report 14, published way back in 1955 with data on 3,201 sightings. Condon only looked at 117. Right, right. Uh, and it had 240 charts, tables, graphs, maps, chock full of data, 250 pages, but lots of tables and graphs and maps and, you know, data heaven for those of us who like such things. They didn't mention Blue Book Reports 1 through 12, also government-sponsored. Uh, you know, a very selective uh, memory. They didn't mention uh, there's at least five theses done at the Air War College down in Alabama. Those are government documents, some of them rather sharp and interesting. Furthermore, if only part of it was secret, we know, in the American experience anyway, that the whited-out NSA documents, 156 pages where you can read about one line per page, if they were generous sometimes, too, the rest was whited out, that it was top-secret code word information. Uh, the CIA released some very heavily blacked out, you can read eight words on a page, UFO documents which were top-secret code word. So if a document is only up to secret, not just because of a little radar, obviously they weren't dealing with the, the hot stuff. Now, the big explanation, the one that seemed to have caught the attention of the headline writers, was plasma, plasma. Well, people have suggested that, Phil Class suggested that decades ago, and it's long since been discredited as a primary explanation because he didn't get his uh, atmospheric physics straight. You know, Dr. James E. MacDonald, who was an atmospheric physicist, straightened it all out in a lengthy paper he did, just reviewing point by point the, the silly things Gloss had said. So yes, plasmas are important. I've been talking about them since 1968 in my congressional testimony, but plasmas around vehicles, as opposed to little blobs of this and that, which somehow behave in all kinds of strange ways. And, you know, they, they didn't also deal with physical trace cases or multiple witness radar visual cases, as far as I can tell, anyway. And so what is this, the report worth? Well, I'm anxious to see it, sort of anxious. <laughs> At least it's shorter than the Condon report, which was 965 pages long. So, But uh, it sounds to me like this was brought out at this timing. The guys who got hold of it are long known as debunkers, and they... Uh, I guess I've been waiting for a, a, a good time to bring it out. It was finished in the year 2000. Remember that Gary McKinnon, the guy who, the hacker who supposedly broke into all kinds of American files and that the United States wants to extradite, you know, that he was looking for secret UFO information. Yes, I heard about that, right. So maybe this is to cover that up. Uh, I don't know, but it seems to me another one of these exercises in nonsensical, nasty, noisy negativism. And, you know, you can laugh on the one hand and say it's pretty sad on the other. Well, it's something that didn't occupy the headlines that much here in the USA, partly because we're all concerned about the price of gas. So we don't worry about whether they solved the UFO mystery in England. We have to pay for a gallon of gas every time we fill up the SUV. Well, you know, they pay a lot more in England than we do, so I guess they're, they're accustomed to it. <laughs> Evidently, I, I, they are. I guess, the, I, I guess the big question, Stan, that, everybody, uh, that I wonder about is what the purpose of the report is. I mean, it certainly doesn't debunk UFOs. 
if it doesn't address some of the cases that um, just in my mind were the mind-boggling cases, I mean, you really can't explain Betty and Barney Hill by plasma. And um, Well, Phil Class tried that, but then he gave up on it. Oh, he did. He did. Yes. Right. I mean, when you realize one of the um, one of the spookiest things about, among a lot of spooky things about that story, was what Barney Hill suppressed, and that was he could look inside this craft that was on the road and see figures moving around. And I mean, well, he didn't suppress it. That scared the heck out of him. <laughs> it scared him, right? But he didn't. He, uh, he didn't tell anybody, really. I mean, I don't think he told it to the Air Force when he reported it to the Air. Well, Force. their first report, he mentioned the, the wind. Windows, but he didn't mention the beings because, I mean, how far out are you going to go? That's this right. 1961, of course, but uh, they did come up later, and he did have conscious memory of them, uh, not about what went on inside or what happened after he looked through the windows. But, you know, uh, the star map, of course, is a very important aspect of things uh, that tells us where those particular guys originate. Uh, there appears to and the be amnios and then the amniocentesis, obviously that wasn't invented for years until after until until well, after remember the four rules of debunkers what the public doesn't know I'm not going to tell them don't bother me with the facts my mind's made up if you can't attack the data attack the people and do your research by proclamation investigation is too darn much trouble and it sounds like this report used all four of those to try to convince the guys who did it that they're really on to something hot. There seems to be, you know, I'd love to see a graduate student do a thesis on the will not to believe in alien visitations amongst well-educated, ignorant academics, if you will. Oh, boy. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me just tell everybody that you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And if you recognize these two voices, they are close friends of the show. William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine, and Stanton T. Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator. And we're talking about the latest developments in a number of issues. And right now, we're just talking about debunking UFOs, which is happening all over again with that British report. Stan, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, a, a typical example uh, and why the need for somebody to study the noisy negativist is uh, Susan Clancy's book, uh, Abducted, Why People Come to Believe That They've Been Kidnapped by Aliens. And I did a review of that. The uh, first one, I think, was published uh, by Bill, wasn't it, Bill? <laughs> I think so, yes. It's on my website now at www.stantonfriedman.com, and I've been amazed. I just added it to the website what the response has been, because I, I laid out fact after fact all the things that Dr. Clancy, Ph.D. from Harvard, no less, gets wrong. And it's incredible that the Harvard University Press would put out such a book, but it's smug, self-satisfied, self-serving, and grossly inaccurate and misleading, uh, including about the Hill case, which is what made me think about it. Right, uh, right. 
And, you know, uh, there is a market, I guess, for garbage. And well-written garbage is particularly marketable. And I guess the porno people would say so, too. (laughs) Well, I just wonder sometimes, who's behind some of this? I mean, Stan, you write about the logic of these things. When you hold these things up to the light of logic, and, 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 and worse than logic, the light of facts, right? When you hold yeah. them up against the facts, these things fall apart because there yeah, is but logic to them, and, and they're wrong on the facts quite often. Do you ever wonder who's behind some of these things? I mean, do you think, I mean, not to cast aspersions on Dr. Clancy, obviously, she's a well-respected psychologist, she's well-respected in the field. I think so. But the point is, you often wonder who they are playing to, because they're certainly not playing to the UFO community. Well, they don't care about the UFO community. They care about the general public, which they feel should disregard UFOs, should marginalize UFOs, should not be taken in by these charlatans who claim to have crazy experiences, which she hasn't had. I mean, Dr. Michael Shermer, the uh, skeptic, uh, I guess that's the name of the journal, uh, he's the editor. Right, right. On a television program about Roswell, he said, show me a body and I'll believe it happened. I mean, if I haven't seen it, it does. It isn't real. What kind of attitude is that? It's it's the most ridiculous thing. But in in her case, I just wonder if there's something else behind a book like that. Just like I can I can understand for the British Ministry of Defense if that report that's been sitting on a shelf somewhere they didn't just commission this report. What is it? Five years old? Six years old? It's sitting on a shelf somewhere. Right? It's sitting on a shelf yeah. somewhere. Now they've got, at least for Britain, a very, very hot case. Is this guy McKinnon going to be uh, extradited to the United States where he can serve 70 years? People have been talking the death penalty for this guy for mucking around in American military computers and causing some damage. Why? Because of UFOs. So the best way to explode this guy's defense is to publish a report that says there are no UFOs, so therefore this guy can have no defense. Now, if there's a political agenda behind this, that's really horrible. Well, you know, look at, uh, at going back to Harvard for just a minute. Uh, they tried to hound John Mack out of his professorship. Now, Mack, unlike Clancy, Mack was in his 70s. Uh, I mean, he died a couple of years back now. But John had a long history as an outstanding academic, written books, got a Pulitzer Prize, professor of psychiatry. I mean, we're not talking about a dink or a fresh-off-the-blocks kind of guy, but they tried to take away because he dug into UFO abduction. So, you know, if you want to say, what's the Harvard thing? They had Dr. Donald Menzel, at least with Menzel. Right. I keep, I, I remember Menzel. I remember that. But yet, Menzel, did Menzel not lead a double life? Well, yeah, as I found out by getting access to his papers after he died, three different people that had given me permission discovered that he had a top-secret ultra-clearance, that he did classified work for the CIA, had claimed a longer continuous association with the National Security Agency and its uh, Navy predecessors of anybody in the country, did classified work for 30 different companies, Nobody knew this until I dug out this information, and people were shocked. Well, I didn't like the man when he was alive. I'd had one run-in with him, which was almost funny. And, you know, you find all kinds of evidence. For example, in Physics Today, he said, all UFO sightings are by poor observers. He had a copy of this Blue Book Special Report 14, and he knows 
that that's simply wrong. The better the observer, the more likely to be unexplainable. So at least I can see where he had his agenda. I think he was the uh, selected debunker, if you will. And so that you can understand. But what was with these people who attacked Mac? What's with Susan Clancy? These are questions I don't have answers for. And Bill, you must get stuff from people who give you a hard time about publishing this, this UFO garbage, don't you? I get it all the time. And, and the thing is, in the, in the case of some of these new debunking, um, Clancy, for example, I think that if there is something still organized, I mean, I believe that, that the vestigial remains of whatever there was that was an official government, you know, stamp them out at all costs, get rid of these people, big secret, I believe that elements of that still remain. I don't think they're as potent as they once were. I don't think they're as passionate about this as they once were, but I think they, I think, I think a remain still exist. Phil Class, rest his soul, Phil Class, even toward the end of his life, was, he was almost doing knee-jerk reaction debunking. I mean, like the the fire was gone, but the muscles still twitched. If you know what I mean. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, very well put. <laughs> Let's not speak ill of the dead, guys. But I believe that what you're saying is correct. <laughs> so, so in this case, at least, I think that you've got these vestigial remains. I think that there is money still available. Look, just like you. I also get stories from people who are very credible and who really tell me what goes on in government. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, even at the first, I believed that that, that this was real from the kinds of people who talked about this inside government, the kinds of technology, the kinds of weapons, the kinds of this, the test pilots, people like that. And these were folks who there's an enormous amount of money spent on these black operations, just an enormous amount, and it's unaccounted for money. And should the spotlight of the press or a reputable scientific opinion, in other words, should this come out into the daylight, should there be too much sunshine on this, I think a lot of those funds would simply dry up. They'd, they'd go other places. And one way you keep this thing going, and by thing, I mean whatever uh, technology we're developing is you keep this thing out of the public. And you keep it out of the public by squashing anybody, especially people who are somewhat official, in coming close to any part of the secret. Are there abductions? Are there UFOs? Has the government had dealings? Who in the government has had dealings? The more derisive and dismissive you could be, the more you can wreck careers. This is kind of like a McCarthyism for UFOs. And that's oh, yes. thing that I could say. It's exactly what it is. And you marginalize the people who are talking. So I think the more activity there is, the more fear that we get closer to stumbling across some of the secrets. Now, we in the UFO community, as you know, do a great job of debunking one another, better than the government could ever do with all its millions of dollars. But that's just like any academic community. They're all like that. But I think that even given our own job, with um, you know crazy stories debunking them, debunking the people, the burishes, the these, the that's they just yeah. you know they just get into these blood warfare. Doesn't matter. Bigger secret is that you've got the government involved and industry involved, and there is kind of a a corporate government nexus of this. And I think they really want to keep this thing out of the limelight. And of course the of course the American press does the best job by simply laughing it off whenever it pops up. 
Well, I think that yeah. right now, just reporting about all the problems with the war in Iraq, the price of gas, whether Bush's approval rating will dip below 30 percent. So that also helps quite a bit. Listen, Bill, I wanted to ask you, and this can phrase the next part of our discussion. You have a new issue of UFO magazine coming out, and with more information, more updates on the Roswell case, more of the background, more of related experience and so forth and so on. Can you tell us what we're going to be reading? Well, yeah, um, and this is something obviously that involves um, Stan as well, because Stan is doing research in this and actually um, was over this ground before I was. This is the case of a World War II fighter ace called Marion M. Magruder, Lieutenant Colonel, Magruder, Black Mac Magruder, he was called. One of the, by the way, one of the few aces who was so important in terms of the command structure out there in the South Pacific that he had a squadron named after him. The name of his night fighting squadron, Hellcats, was Black Mac's Killers. And this is an individual who otherwise had a sterling career. And in fact, um, Stan and Scott Ramsey, well, we've been looking into uh, the kinds of theses this guy was writing, and his theses were so important, they were dealing with, at least the one that I have from Air University, was on the first use of nuclear weapons. I mean, it's a really startling thesis. I got Stan, um, I, I, I got it from the eldest son, and I'm going to make some copies and um, when I get to a copy machine and shoot them around. But this is a thesis in which this lieutenant colonel actually says the United States should not shy away from a first use of nuclear weapons and said, look, I was in Okinawa in 1945, and I knew what it would have been like if we had had to invade the Japanese home islands. And so the United States has already been the first user of nuclear weapons. Nobody used them against us in the South Pacific. We used them, and it won the war, and it won the war quickly. This is a person who despised war, but who said, whose argument was that there shouldn't be any moral implications regarding the first use of nuclear weapons as a strategic doctrine. Well, this person, this person told his children that in 1947, and his records seem to imply something, there's, there are these, there's this missing week when it was called travel delay, that he and the class of the Air War College, 1947, July 47 to, August, to June 48, went up to Wright Field from Maxwell Air Force Base in, in Alabama, where they saw firsthand and touched it, I guess, or handled it in some way, and I can't even begin to tell you how they handle it, the Roswell debris. And worse, they actually saw the one living alien that still existed. He described it. He described it very specifically, and his descriptions comport with some of the other Roswell witnesses, self-described witnesses, because we have no other verification of that, but at least they're witnesses, and um, described it very uh, in very important ways. And this description and what happened to that alien, it was killed, he said, through, through tests we ran on it, stayed with him for the next 50 years, so that even on his deathbed, in his dying weeks, he died of emphysema, in, in, in his dying weeks, he kept on talking about that alien to his children and, 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 and sending messages to his granddaughter who had asked about it, that we killed it, 
It was alive. We killed it. It was a shameful thing to do. All life in the universe has meaning, and, and we killed it. And, and why would this thing linger with him for 50 years that it made that much of an impression? So this is someone that, whose story He's I... He's an impressive guy. And incidentally, his thesis at the Air War College uh, was classified secret. It eventually it dealt with not nuclear weapons, but the use of rockets and missiles in warfare. Mm. And it was still secret for many years, and it became confidential, and eventually it got declassified. And this is a guy who was a top dog, top gun if you want, a marine pilot, but um, his record leading this uh, squadron of night fighters, Navy night fighters, was outstanding. You know, I have incredible respect for anybody who can land an airplane on a carrier at night. <laughs> That's right. A high-performance airplane. And so this was a guy who was considered significant enough, enough potential, to send him to the Air War College in the first place. Remember, this is a time when we were kind of cutting back on the military for a brief period there as the Cold War was heating up. So that he would do a classified thesis in itself says something, that it was thought well enough. If it wasn't well thought of, it wouldn't have been classified. It would just have been passed off as, you know, some one guy's opinion about something. So uh, we need more people like that to come forward. Uh, I tell the story how uh, Colonel, well, he's retired general when I talked to him, Thomas Jefferson DuBose, he's in a couple of those pictures with General Roger Ramey mm -hmm. of the 8th Air Force in Fort Worth, Texas. And... I managed to locate him uh, by good luck and hard looking. I figured he might have come from West Point because a lot of officers did. So I checked with their alumni association. My goodness, he was still alive. Unusual name, Thomas Jefferson DuBose. So it's not like looking for Tom Smith. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. that thought, Stan, let me just tell everybody, okay. this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're having a conference here with Stanton Friedman and Bill Burns. We're talking about the new things that we now know about what might have happened during the era of Roswell. Go ahead, Stan. Well, just that with DuBose, I managed to locate him, and I called him, and then I met with him twice. And we had several other phone conversations, and he told me, you know, standing two feet away from me, he was still of sound mind, he was in his late 80s, and he told me about getting the call from General Ramey's boss, uh, Clements McMullen, telling him to cover up the story. This is after Walter Hodd had put out his press release on July 8th, 1947, about noon. And uh, DuBose told me that McMillan called him. They knew each other, both West Pointers. And uh, cover it up. I don't care how you do it. Get the press off our back. That's an order, you understand, from a two-star general to a colonel. The second thing was send some of that wreckage up here today with one of your colonel couriers. And third, I don't want you ever to talk about it again, not even with your buddy Roger Ramey. That's an order. Do I need to put it in writing? No, sir. 
On a two-star general, tells a colonel what to do, he does it, especially when, you know, you know each other. Well, the interesting thing is when I was talking to DuBose after our meetings and our conversations, finally, one of our last conversations said, look, Stan, I like what you're doing. If I think of anything else, and he's been interviewed, he's in the video recollections of Roswell, which is available from Euphoria. Check my website. It'll tell you, www.stantonfriedman.com. If I think of anything else, I'll call you. What can they do to me now? And it's that phrase that has stuck with me, because if there are people who know more about Mac Magruder, people he knew in business, he was a very successful businessman. Uh, he was active in a church uh, group. You can find this on the web. This is a very highly respected guy, and you wonder whether maybe... Uh, some of the people he associated with who also had military backgrounds that he might have felt somewhat comfortable in talking to. And, you know, uh, I'm hoping, I mean, I've got, uh, they can write me at fsphys at rogers.com, R-O-G-E-R-S.com. They can call me. I don't use witness names without permission. My toll-free number, no less, is 877 877- Four five seven zero two three two, but we hate to see this data go down the drain because I know from people come up to me after my lectures where I take a very strong, definite pro UFO stand to say the least. I know that people want to get this stuff off their chest, but they don't know who to talk to. That's right, and they're afraid. Obviously, now you bring up what Dubose said to you. What can they do to me now? And that's really interesting and important because. We know that what that whoever is kind of keeping the flame on this, guarding the secret, you know they were active and probably still are active. Mac Magruder's children reported, his sons reported, that their father was visited once or twice a year on a regular basis from the time he left the military. And who knows what happened in the military? Obviously, he left in the 60s. But he uh, was visited once or twice a year on a routine basis by a detail of sometimes three people, sometimes two people. And they would get in a room with him quietly. And it was a very, according to Mac Magruder, because he, he told his kids, finally he told his kids what they asked him and what they said, it was a very short, a very short interrogation. It was essentially, have you told what you were told not to tell anybody? And who did you tell it to? Whom did you tell it to? And they reiterated the threat. Anybody you tell this story to, anybody, is in danger. Their lives are in danger. In other words, Mac Magruder was officially, the story was officially disclosed to Magruder. He wasn't an accidental witness. He was part of the plan. Anybody he discloses that story to is not part of the plan, and that person's life is in danger. And essentially they're threatening the kids. And finally, in 1974, this is a guy, it's 1974, he was one of the big, believe it or not, it was, he was a McDonald's franchiser, a big McDonald's type, McDonald's all over, the, um, all over the western states. This guy finally gets up, and he says to these two guys, one of whom was in uniform, he says, I'm a Marine, I will always be a Marine. He goes into his war record, he says, I never want to see you guys again get out of my office. And it was the last time they bothered him. <laughs> and it was after that, actually in the late 70s, that he really first began talking, after Jesse Marcel went public, after you went public with Jesse Marcel, Stan, that he began talking about the story in greater detail. The first time he disclosed the story to his children, his youngest son told me, they were watching Neil Armstrong on the moon. 
And the youngest son said to his father, boy, I wonder if, to give you an idea about how close this guy kept the secret, the the son said, I wonder if there are any people living on other planets. I wonder if we'll ever find people living on other planets. And the father, in an offhanded way, says to his son, Merritt, he says, I know there are people on other planets. And the son kind of looks at the father and says, what do you mean? He says, I know there are people living on other planets. And when Merritt presses him for more information, the father says, that's all I will ever tell you. Anything more is dangerous. You'll find out someday. End of conversation. But then starting 10 years later, he begins revealing more and more until finally he tells one of the sons that, um, yes, there were UFOs. It was in one of the uh, Roswell television pieces, and I don't know whether it was, uh, I don't know whether it was a documentary, I don't know whether it was the Paul David piece, I don't know what it was. Unsolved Mysteries, who knows? Unsolved Mysteries, you just don't know. But it was one of those pieces, the son asks about Roswell, wow, I wonder if that really happened, and the father says, I know it happened, I was part of it. And that began this very slow, then 20-year dragged out piece of disclosure in which little pieces came out one at a time until finally he said that I saw the alien and he used this dramatic word and that's what we really hit on in the article a lot he said it was squiggly and okay. he said, what does squiggly mean you've entered another dimension you've entered Let's talk about squiggly. I got to tell our listeners before we squiggle away. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. If you go to ufomag.com, you'll learn more. And we also have Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO pioneer, investigator. You go to stantonfriedman.com, you'll learn more about that. And if you click on the Stanton T. Friedman link, at our site, theparacast.com, you go to a page on Stan's website where he has a special deal on some of his current books. So he'll tell us about that in just a few moments. Right now, I want to go back to Bill because he's taking us on a fascinating journey here of research and illumination. Well, Bill, haven't you heard other hints of stories like this before? Oh, sure, Stan. We, well, we both have. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, Alpha Rowe describing what her father allegedly saw, and you keep have to saying allegedly, but sure. what her father allegedly saw at one of the hangars at Walker Field when he was there doing some work. He was a civilian mechanic at the base, and he said that these soldiers brought this thing on a stretcher into the building, and it looks up at him, and he said it was, he said he knew, looking at that creature, one, it was insect-like, two, it had an insect-like face, and Frankie Rose's father confirmed that. It, it, it didn't come from this world, from this world, and wherever it came from, it was not long for it because it was it was near death. But he had this overwhelming sense of sadness from looking down at this creature. Again, it's child size, maybe four to five feet, but it did not look like 
this um, alien that actually was first created, I believe, by Wan Ming Chang, the um, Star Trek um, artist, for Outer Limits in 1962, which is interesting, and 61. Um, it was not the large-headed gray that has become the iconic symbol for ufology. It was more childlike, more human-like, but because of the different features, you knew this thing wasn't human. He described it that way. Uh, Frankie Rowe's father, Dan Rowe, a fireman who rolled on the crash um, outside of Roswell, he described really the same thing. He said he saw this thing running around and the soldiers had a trap. And we've heard this uh, from a few different places. I, I know that Glenn Dennis said that the nurse, and this is a story that's not gone without challenge. We both know that. People have yeah. really challenged the story. Nevertheless, he uses the same terms to describe this entity via the nurse who said she saw it um, in the same exact way that uh, Mac Magruder did, that they all stress that it looked more human than not human, but that the differences between it and a human being were more frightening than if they had been looking at a monster. In fact, one of the things that Frankie Rowe's father said was that it looked like this insect called Child of the Earth. I've never seen one. It's kind of a desert insect where all the features are directly in the front of the face. So it didn't look, so it, it didn't have Jackie Kennedy wall eyes, if you know what I mean. Everything was right in front of its face. And that was really stunning to me, to, 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 to see the similarities among all these descriptions and the fact that it was a pinkish tone, that it was not the, the, the scaly gray, but it was a pinkish toned, Mac Magruder said it was flesh toned. And that everything about it, its its limbs, or its arms were over long, were were oversized. Um, that's why he said it was squiggly because it kept on moving its arms, almost like the arms were not muscular the way um, the arms yeah. of a human being were. And that long was, fingers too, where you often long, hear long four fingers. These uh, these are not spatulate hands, so to speak. They were they, uh, they were long four fingers. And he didn't come up with any medical reports. He didn't say, oh, we analyzed it and it was blankety-blank. There was none of that. It was simply just this first-hand observation. But here's the other stunner to me about Mac Magruder. He said he implied to his children that the government had, and this is late July, 47 now, that the government had not yet made a decision about what to do with this information. And that's why they brought in his class from the Air War College. This was a strategic issue. What were they going to do with this information? As it turned out, we know they just basically put it under a lid and tried to keep it as closed as possible. But clearly, there was some thinking going on somewhere about what to do, whom to expose, and what kinds of opinions they wanted to get. And that was in July 47. And that was really Well, surely military officers who've been through, through intensive combat and demonstrated they could handle enormous amount of stress that goes with that uh, would have been good targets. They were younger, but, you know, what's your guy's reaction? Let's see how this flies. Now, what I'd love to see, everybody's heard about the Brookings report, uh, about, you know, what would happen if there was contact with extraterrestrials. But people don't often point out it was an unclassified report. Now, I would certainly expect that somewhere, you know, in some vault somewhere, there is a report which was classified, which looked at the same questions and looked with specific examples. 
okay, we've got bodies, we've got wreckage, we know that the technology is way beyond ours, that these guys must have a purpose here, how should we react toward it? And I'll bet you, in, buried in some study like that, and if anybody's listening who knows about such a study, we'd sure like to hear about it, uh, are recommendations about how we should act, what we should tell the public, what we should tell the Russians, or at that time, you know, the Cold War and all that stuff. And, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who've been asked to look at this kind of thing. Don't you think so, Bill? I absolutely agree with you on that one, and I'll tell you, I wonder, and I, 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 I also wonder if you're wondering this, too, that this whole business of reclassification, when you, <laughs> right, when you realize, you know, what's going on now, by the way, is uh, in the government there is a reclassification of documents, and there are literally millions of these documents that would normally, after an X number of years span, become declassified. It's part of a sunshine law. Uh, Bill Clinton, this was a law passed under the Clinton uh, administration maybe, what, um, 10 years ago? And uh, 10 years ago, exactly. And so that's one thing though. we okay. can't blame Bush for. Right. <laughs> well, what you can't, there is a blame to be associated here. When Clinton set this up, Executive Order 12958, what it covered was automatic declassification of classified documents more than 25 years old unless the holding agency could justify keeping the documents classified, which means you've got to go through all your stuff and uh, only hold back that which uh, is really hot stuff. Well, the idea was that in five years, everything would be declassified barring their having justified. Well, nobody did anything because they didn't expect Clinton to be reelected in 96, and the Republicans weren't going to go for this thing. But he was reelected, and then suddenly the Air Force was uh, looking at 100,000 pages a month, and then the year for... Uh, you know, during which things would automatically come out, was moved from 2001 to 2003, 2005, and I don't know what the last one is, that I've heard is, I think 2008. So the Bush administration has certainly pushed off the date uh, when this would happen. And what's funny is the CIA actually put out a press release about how much stuff they had released. They didn't talk about what they didn't release. And maybe I should add, the last time I was at the Eisenhower Library a couple of years ago, I found out that they were still holding about 300,000 pages of classified material. And he went out of office in 1961. So... You know, that's what they have. Now, the National Archives have zillions of pages of everything. I mean, it's incredible how much stuff is still classified. But, uh, yeah, the sunshine laws, uh, the sun's gone down when it comes to the present administration. Right. Oh, so here's a case where you've got all these documents, and who knows what's in them with respect to UFOs, right? Nobody. Nobody knows. And these things are set to be reclassified or declassified. And so now what the administration is doing is they are jumping on these things, and even the folks at the National Archives are very alarmed at the wholesale yanking back of records that would normally come up for review and just automatically saying, no, these are reclassified. Even documents, by the way, that have already been declassified. So there's no damage now. They're out in the public. Now they're being reclassified um, as, uh, as secret so that they can't be released. So obviously, you know, and here's where we can just go off for the next 
weak into wild speculation, but you have to ask yourself, and this is we've asked ourselves in the UFO community over and over again, what could be so devastating? We know about, Stan raised it, we know about the issues of radar technology back from the 60s, 70s, probably the 80s. We know about some issues of weapons they don't want to see discussed. We know there might be references to various listening posts around the world, right, Stan, where somebody hears something, notes something, and you don't want your enemy to know. We don't want the Iranians to know that uh, in a sub-basement in Tehran, we have a CIA listening post that's monitoring, and they picked up a flying saucer. So, so you don't want that stuff. Everybody agrees with that, right? You know, there's no debate yeah. here on that. But what you wonder is what else might there be beyond that? That could be so devastating, and here's where the real speculation begins, and it's probably not the proper subject for this hour, but obviously there are some secrets that those in power, and I mean regardless of which party is in power in the United States, that, uh, that those in power want to keep very closely guarded. Why is it that uh, George Bush, George H.W. Bush, told Jimmy Carter he had no need to know about the UFO secrets that the government was keeping because he was not he was doing this only out of curiosity? What was behind Bill Clinton's pushing for this mass declassification of of records after a certain period of time? Was Bill Clinton and only somebody can ask Bill Clinton about this, and he's around and he'll talk, but not anymore because he'll always running for president, but, but, but what could you say, what could he tell you about his rationale for that? Besides um, burying you in policy speak, would there be something there if you asked him, look, you asked Webb Hubble to find out about the Kennedy assassination, you asked Webb Hubble to find out about uh, the real secret behind UFOs, you were shut down on both scores, and in fact, after you sent Webb Hubble into that mess, that's when the whole Whitewater scandal came up out of the grave, out of the swamp, to attack you for the next eight years. Um, what's going on here? What gives? Uh, what do you think about this? Uh, is that declassification kind of a backdoor way to get the UFO secret out? Just like Jimmy Carter is working with Stu Weisenstadt, his domestic policy advisor, with Al Weber over at Stanford Research Institute back in 1977, was that also a way to... Uh, get these secrets out kind of like a back door, which, by the way, George Bush suggested Carter should do. He said, I can't tell you this and won't tell you this because you have no need to know, but let me tell you, here's a way to get those very same secrets out. And he gave him a road map or supposedly gave him a roadmap. If you, if you talk to Dan Sheehan about this, like the uh, lawyer from Silkwood versus Kermit yeah. in the Pentagon Papers, he gave him a roadmap through various documents and hurdles he would have to climb. And Carter, as soon as he got into office, commenced that very roadmap and climb until the Pentagon came in and shut him down, threatening SRI with the cutoff of its budget, because in the Pentagon's words, there are no UFOs, so you don't have to waste your time searching for things that don't exist. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Okay, let anyway. me pause for a second, guys, and tell you this okay. is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Stanton T. Friedman, UFO investigator, Bill Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. Guys, you're opening up so many fascinating areas of discussion, and I'd like to continue for a little while longer so we could maybe pursue a few more things. And the one is... Assuming everything about this UFO enigma is true, the aliens are here in great numbers, evidenced by the number of sightings we have, how do you break it to our population without causing a lot of problems? Right now, the entire economy around the world is all screwed up. We have the oil crisis. We have various and sundry terrorism threats. Everything is one big mess. Now, if you're flying out there in a spaceship, you're an alien being that has somehow managed to survive thousands or millions of years and keep your civilization going and you're visiting us, do you want to make your presence known? And if you are in the Pentagon and you realize it's inevitable, what do you do? Well, let me put it another way to stand, because I, I, think, I, I think the question can really be bite-sized here. First of all, everybody now knows in the UFO community, Gene, that this is really not a cover-up on such a major scale. Astronauts, pilots, witnesses, they've all seen UFOs. This, is, this, this runs right through the records. The Washington, D.C. 1952 UFO visitation, Ruppelt was told by a three-letter agency these UFOs would appear over Washington. Mac Magruder was dragged out of bed in the middle of the night on July 27th to go to the Pentagon and, and look at the radar when some of these planes went down. Frank Faschino has written a magnificent book documenting those events about the shootdowns of the UFOs. We have a new witness in a July magazine about the Thomas Mantell shootdown. So the witnesses are there. They're dying, but they're there. The question is not do you tell the people, but the question I would pose to Stan would be exactly what do you tell the people? Well, I think uh, there are several different things going on here at once. One, I think you have to say that uh, you tell the public that, look, for decades, the planet's been visited. There are good things about that. There are bad things about that. We are not able to move out until we get our act together. The technology things we've learned and other countries have learned are not going to be put on the table because we know there are terrorist groups who would love to get their hands on that technology. Uh, you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. However, we have also learned something about how we look to them. We have learned a lot about the history of the local galactic neighborhood, if you will. We know that civilizations, like because I honestly believe there's been contact on some levels, direct contact with aliens, we know that some civilizations don't make it through this difficult period of lots of new weapons and not enough control over how they get used and how the resources of a planet get used. We think a new era has begun that is very significant. We recognize that there are religious implications of this. We are already arranged, we and other countries together, and I should, don't think it should be unilateral, U.S., have arranged for international conferences with regard to the religious implications, the economic implications, the political implications. We recognize that there isn't anybody now who is empowered to speak for the entire planet. 
And we know that to get from there where there is somebody or some people is a great big step because we know that distrust is rampant here and for pretty good reasons. But it's a new time. It's a new beginning. Our children need to know that we're moving toward a planetary viewpoint. I think we need to do stuff like that. And I certainly don't think we should be saying, these guys are going to clobber us in five years and we better clobber them first. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different approaches you can take. I don't think that's a good one to take. Because Tim, based on, well, based Tim, on my... Go ahead. Go no, on. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. I was going to say, fight amongst yourself, gentlemen. I'll just sit back and enjoy the show. No, I mean, look at the look at the bombs you've just dropped. I mean, you basically... There's a whole bunch of them. I know that. I mean, you basically carpet bombed everything here because look what you're saying. I mean, the, the implicate and, and, and I mean, if I'm a government official sitting in Washington and I'm listening to you, I would say no, it's cheaper. It's just in dollars, cents, and euros. It's cheaper not to do what you're suggesting, because look at the bombs you dropped. We have no world government that can effectively speak for the human race in dealing with a group of extraterrestrials. You, you basically, in one sentence, set up something that, let's just say, um, conquerors from Alexander the Great back to Darius and Tamerlane have all tried to do and failed. So, and you're proposing that as a way, and I'm saying this kind of in a joking way, obviously, but, but, but you're proposing this as a way to deal from a quote-unquote either an opportunity or a threat from outer space, which, by the way, is exactly what Douglas MacArthur called this, and he certainly was in the know. You're talking about bringing together together religious leaders who among themselves are capable of were behind more wars destroying more lives over 7,000 years of human civilization than any one president was able to do, right? Yes. Or king or, or, or dictator. Emperor. <laughs> yes. You, uh, you're going to suggest that somehow, and then who's in, and Stan, who's in the room talking about this? Do you bring Pope Benedict and Jerry Falwell into the same room with the with uh, the Ayatollah. But how I mean, about the Dalai Lama in there, too? Exactly. Wouldn't you want to get the Dalai Lama in there? And, of course, the chief rabbi is going to want to have his three cents, not two cents. So by the time you get all these guys in the same room, and women, because, you know, we're in a egalitarian society, by the time you get all these people in the same room, now you're dealing with 7,000 years of religious doctrine that basically has to be, um, I mean, what do you say? These guys are really the Nephilim that has to be either reconfigured, well, so to speak. We have and a we choice to make. About the ancient, and we haven't even talked about the indigenous peoples yet. We, we have a choice to make. The world has changed, changed drastically. The ability to slaughter has gone up exponentially. The ability to communicate has gone up exponentially. The ability to destroy some of the things we need on this planet has rapidly increased. We're at a point in history where if we don't change what's going on, we're heading for hell in a handbasket anyway. So why not take have the guts, and that's really what we're talking about, to start the ball rolling on a new approach to how we live on this planet, because we have obviously not managed to take care of the needs of the people here, except those people who want to be able to kill. That's and, right, and want to make money. But now look at the bomb you didn't drop, which... which the I'm economic implications. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
let's hold the bomb, yet. guys. Let's hold the bomb because you, you can drop it in one second, guys, but I have to tell everybody. <laughs> this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Stanton Friedman, UFO investigator. Go to stantonfriedman.com. And if you check the link at www.theparacast.com, you go to theparacast.com, there's a link to a special that Stan has on his books. Or we have, of course, Bill Burns of UFO Magazine. He's the publisher. Go to ufomag.com and you'll learn more. Bill, you have a bomb to drop. Let's pull well, out the well, fuse I, I, and drop I actually, it. I actually have a double bomb to drop, and I oh, want boy. to see what Stan thinks about this. First, Stan, of course, you did mention the economic implications, and basically... No, I was thinking about them. <laughs> you're think, I know you're thinking about them, because you were a nuclear physicist here, and you know more than I do what would happen if you actually hit the petroleum infrastructure of the world and you know maybe we don't care so much about the Middle East but we certainly care about all the little old blue haired ladies in the United States that that dutifully clip their Exxon stock every quarter what's going to happen to that economic infrastructure and we all know well there'll be new economics new this new that Bill Clinton said it new jobs we all know that that's that's policy stuff the hit that some of these folks are going to take, and you, of course, also know you are mindful of what George Westinghouse once said to Nikola Tesla after Tesla announced he beamed free energy or was capable of doing it. Westinghouse said to Tesla, how do you make money off that? I'm not investing in something that's free. So you've got how do you commoditize, to use a venture capitalist term, or monetize the UFO um, technology? We have a situation that we can look to as a bit of an example. There's no question we're talking about massive changes. Now, those cities in the South who were successful in desegregation of the schools, they desegregated first grade this year. Next year, it's first and second grade. Next year after that, it's second, you know, first, second, third grade, etc. And you have a gradual changeover that doesn't make it necessary for you to change the minds immediately of people who've been living in a certain time frame with certain attitudes. And I think it's going to take the world a while to acclimatize itself to being part of a galactic neighborhood. That's a big step. I mean, after all, Copernicus's book was penned for 300 years, and he only moved the center over one little step. So I'm not denying that these are going to be difficult decisions to be made by lots of people who don't want to give up power. Remember, that's what drives the power-hungry people is they want to keep the power that they have. I'm saying, however, that the gradual changeover has to happen. And probably every other newborn, if you will, galactic community has had to go through exactly the same procedure. They're not going to be all like us and with the same inventions and all the rest of that. But uh, let, let's point out something. Every advanced civilization is going to figure out how its star works by nuclear fusion. Knowing that means that you can develop H-bomb. You know, that, that's a fact of life. So everybody has to figure out whether they're going to use nuclear fusion to produce energy and to produce deep space traveling systems where they're going to splatter civilizations around all over the place. So these are not new problems in the larger scheme of things. And one of the reasons for trying to find out more from our visiting, from our visitors, I won't say friends, I'll say visitors, without giving a value judgment, is what works and what doesn't work.
And after all, we have had other problems on the planet. How about the whole business of nuclear weapons? I mean, that was a big step to take to say, you know, we can destroy uh, most of a city like Hiroshima with one bomb. We heard about 10-ton blockbusters, and it took an awful lot of them to destroy a city in Europe. One bomb. And then pretty soon it's uh, 100 times that, and then it's 1,000 times that. We've grown accustomed to change, to fear, to looking forward and looking backward and trying to figure out what do we do now. But ducking the problem doesn't bring you the solution. If you're worried about when am I going to plant my crops, it might rain, you may starve if you decide, well, it might, it might, it might. Uh, gee, you know, you, you got to hedge your bets, says the guys yeah, in Vegas. But, but we've both skirted around what might be the really big question mark in all this, which is this. And we don't want to go into woo-woo because um, I mean, you're a nuclear physicist, and uh, we don't want to go to places where science can't take us. But here's the issue. How do you tell the folks down on the farm and in the cities who everything you've just said, economically, politically, uh, from the point of view of religious doctrine, from the world coming together, those are all as insurmountable as they seem. You would agree these are ultimately solvable problems. They're solvable politically, they're solvable economically, they're solvable scientifically, they're solvable because they are in the realm of human experience going back 7,000 years, okay? From the time Abraham yeah. said to the Hittites, okay, exactly how much is this cave going to cost me and don't give me any garbage, and got 400 shekels as the price. And they said, fine, 400 shekels, done deal. First real estate deal in the Bible. From that point on, economics has really been essentially the same. The question that I'm raising to you here is what happens when we find out, not if we find out, but when we find out that any entities capable, and I'll go through the small stuff, then to the big stuff, that any entities capable of the navigation that you're talking about don't just travel in space. They are able to find ways to warp time, whether through a George Powell time machine, which I really doubt, or through some kind of um, hyperspace transit, which is more likely, or through an exotic zero-point energy drive. But they are able to um, achieve what some of the things that Einstein first suggested about the relationship of speed and uh, time and light. The point is you will then be dealing with the concept that time is not really a one way continuum that's great for theoretical physicists, okay? It's not great for uh, the guy getting on the, or, the, or, or the woman getting on the subway to go to work because suddenly time becomes not what they're used to on an everyday basis. That's a mind-boggling implication for the world. I think for most people it will be of little concern because I think they're, it's like the whole business of SETI. Hey, we picked up a signal from another civilization. Where are they? Oh, we figure they're... Uh, there's a star about a thousand light years away. That's nice. Pass the butter. You know, it doesn't matter. We Most people don't spend most of their time worrying about things they can't do anything about and don't have an immediate impact on them. So I think that most of us would go about our normal, standard, humdrum, if you will, existence. But I think there would be a slow movement in the direction of change. Change in many different the fields we've already discussed. And I think that's good. I don't think you can say, hey, tomorrow it's all going to be different, because I don't think it will be. Uh, there's still plenty of people who don't have enough to eat, enough shelter, enough medicine, 
uh, lifespans are shortening in the Soviet Union, for example, not lengthening. And, uh, you know, we haven't talked about the reproductive problems here. If people start living to be 100 years, who's going to take care of the old people? And, uh, can you know, China has a restraint on how many kids people can have. There are other countries that have no restraint at all and are encouraging, be fruitful and multiply. So there, there are other major problems here, but I think you've you got to start somewhere. And I think we don't have people in government who are big enough people to bite the bullet and say, okay, folks, uh, this is a tough one. We've got to admit we've been lying for all these time. But, of course, that was previous administrations, not my administration. <laughs> you know? Of course. Uh, of course. That's, uh, that's true. But then you get to the even bigger question. So, okay, so, you're, so you would say that the idea that time is flexible, these creatures are traveling in time, which means theoretically a, a sentient being can go back into the past. I'm not sure that's true, incidentally. I'm not okay, a big Okay, neither am I, but I'm saying, let's just say, or, or into the future, but let's just say, well, we're talking the future anyway, by, uh, by default. But let's say that, and, I, and, and I'm referring to something that uh, George Hoover uh, of the United States Navy, before he died, said to us about UFOs in the military. George Hoover, who, by the way, is the person who wrote, I think it's the Office of Naval Intelligence report on the Morris K. Jessup book in which he referred to um, the Philadelphia experiment, and basically the Navy debunked it, saying it was you know, a wild tale by this guy Carl Allen. But this material was given to George Hoover, one of the two officers uh, who was asked, and he made notes, the famous notes in the Morris K. Jessup book, which I actually physically saw his widow showed it to me. Hoover also had a very stellar, regular career, besides having spotted the Japanese fleet off Pearl Harbor and radioing back and being told, shut your mouth. Um, besides that, he was also the um, scientific consultant to Walt Disney on that Man in Space series back in the 1950s. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me pause a second and let you continue right after I say this is the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're talking to William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine and nuclear physicist and UFO expert Stanton T. Friedman. Bill, go ahead, please. So this guy, George Hoover, who, who later went on to be one of the inventors of the, heads, of the heads-up display for fighter cockpits, this guy says it wasn't the UFOs ever that was the big problem for the military. He didn't say government, he said military. It wasn't the UFOs, the flying saucers. That's not a big deal. Big deal was what the military learned about those inside those flying saucers and that the potential that they had. And what he was talking about was essentially that human beings had the same kind of ability that the cre not scientifically, but um, let's say in terms of who and what they were, that the creatures inside these craft were. And he said the military understood that basically they could use their intentionality to affect the future. In other words, they could move things. They had psychokinetic powers. They had psychic, what we would call psychic powers. They could remote view. They could move objects. 
he said well, it would be amazing if they couldn't you know <laughs> yeah right but what I'm saying is he's saying human beings have the same powers well anybody who reads some of these experiments about uh, people with frontal lobe damage being able to affect future events like which cards turn over and stuff like that I mean there is strong scientific suggestive evidence not conclusive evidence but no. suggestive evidence that that um, indeed human beings do have some of these powers some human beings more than others now you know I I, I always see uh, the amazing Kreskin as, as simply a very advanced remote viewer, right? It's nothing magic, just a remote viewer. Paul Smith can do it. Hal Putoff can do it. Amazing Kreskin can do it. The, 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 but the point is that that was a staggering secret that this guy, Hoover, I think it was a commander, uh, said at all costs the military wanted to keep hidden because that was the one thing they couldn't control. And, and I'm just and I'm just wondering if that if that ability if that's the fundamental sea change the information that becomes so transformative that once we know that literally the entire political system our social contract has to be rewritten because of what that implies about human beings and their potential. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to handle that one because I don't know how to do not. that. Right. We don't want to do that. That's 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 what I'm saying. We don't go there. Because that's the area of such wild speculation, and that's where the you know the Bill O'Reillys jump all over us and say, oh, you know, you guys are just you know, kind of wacko, woo-woos, crazy UFO nuts, things like that. But of course, that's along the path. And no matter what we do, that question, if we don't discuss it, uh, and I don't know whether it's right or wrong or true or false, what I've been told is that's the very question that was circulating in the military in the 1950s. I'll leave room for that. And, you know, I, I don't feel that I uh, have to solve all the UFO problems. I am trying to communicate uh, the overwhelming evidence that we are being visited because it does affect how we think about ourselves. I mean, what I'm concerned about is what happens for my grandson's generation. Uh, will our failure to recognize that we're part of a... a call it a galactic neighborhood, for want of a better phrase, whether that isn't going to get us into serious trouble, because let's face it, we've got limited resources, we're going to be reaching out, we're going to grab an asteroid or two or three, we're going to settle up, uh, set up the colonies, if you will, out there. It seems to be our destiny to move out, and I'm very concerned if we try to do this without recognizing that we're not the big shots in the neighborhood, which we seem to think we are. And if we don't talk about these things, if, if the Harvards of the world don't consider it worthwhile to look at the facts and the data instead put out propaganda like Susan Clancy's book, that is of concern to me. We're burying our heads in the that sand, and that, that leaves the wrong part of our anatomy up for grabs. Oh. <laughs> And it should be of concern to you, because literally um, what we're talking around about here is kind of, let's say, a UFO gate. In other words, you've got this conspiracy not just of silence, but a conspiracy of disinformation. It's not a conspiracy of guys sitting there planning a crime. It's a conspiracy of if you are a reputable scholar, and this is one thing that Peter Sturrock mentioned in his book. Um, he said that if you're a reputable scholar and you are getting funding from the government, to conduct your research, and the government can turn the tap water of money off anytime it wants to because you discuss a taboo subject, i.e., you can't see a certain kind of a star because that 
GD UFO is sitting between you and the star and really messing up the picture, which is what a lot of astrophysicists have said to him, that um, if you mention it, if you write about that in the scholarly journal, there's going to be mass derision, mass denial, and the government will simply say, fine, you are off the funding list. So, so there's one kind of conspiracy. John Noble Wilford will discuss UFOs on the front page of the New York Times, as he did in July 1997, because he's talking about uh, an, an Air Force report, and everybody is having a collective laugh uh, um, at the expense of all the nuts who point to the table that's sitting in front of everybody in the room bang on the table and say, all these people see the table, why can't you? And they say, ha, 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 there's no table there, you're just looking at swamp gas. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Hey, guys, let me, in the final portion of this interview, ask you to pose another set of possibilities here. We're looking at the possibility of visitations by alien beings from our point of view. Now, consider how our society is structured these days, and now put yourself, maybe for the next five or ten minutes or so, in the minds of these alien creatures visiting us, and since different kinds of creatures have been reported, it's certainly reasonable, I assume, guys, to suspect that there are different races, different origins involved. What do they think about us, and what motivates them? And let's look at some possibilities, but first, let me tell everybody, this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. Go to ufomag.com. And we're talking about an upcoming issue where some interesting information is going to be presented about the Roswell case. And before we let our guests go, we'll explain that in more detail. Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator. Go to StantonFriedman.com to learn more. Okay, so let's look at that. Either one of I you think, guys take it. I think that uh, from an alien viewpoint, we're a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. I don't know of any simpler and more accurate way of describing activities on this planet. There's all kinds of things going on. But when you look at how we spend our money, we Earthlings, uh, this year it'll be roughly a trillion dollars on things military. Uh, the United States spending roughly half of that, which is kind of a sad comment, too. But uh, at the same time, we have to say that more than 30,000 children die needlessly every single day of preventable disease and starvation. Now, if you're an alien, you look around at this place and you shake your head and you say, these guys are crazy. They're nuts. Uh, they bout this nonsense about how important it is that we take care of every individual life and freedom and all this kind of thing. Well, there isn't much freedom when you don't have enough food to eat. And when the other guy's spending his money on guns, uh, what's a B-2 bomber cost? I think it's $2 billion or so. Boy, you could feed an awful lot of kids of that. Right now in Darfur, what were they, I forget what the number is going to be, half a million killed, die of starvation? Easily easily half a million, going up to three-quarters of a million, and, and they can't even agree to stop the shooting, by the way. That's part of the problem. That's they right. Yeah, they, they, uh, they can't even stop the shooting for enough time to get relief into Darfur. And you're right, what would an alien race think of people who would let 
millions and millions of children simply die of starvation and their parents get abducted and killed and raped and slaughtered and cut into different pieces, what would they say about that? They might say that, you know, they made a mistake when they set up the local galactic penal colony here. They dumped all the bad boys and girls here to isolate them from civilized societies. And look what they've produced, the monstrosity. And they're getting ready to move out. Hey, we got to make sure that doesn't happen. We don't want guys like that around outside. And the kicker here is the planet's been around four and a half billion years or so. Uh, the galaxy, you know, maybe it's 13 billion. It doesn't matter whether it's nine or 13 or whatever billion years. And these guys have been around for thousands of years and they, they reached the pinnacle of their success by killing 50 million people in a five-year period or six-year period during World War II, uh, this place is nuts. Uh, however, we have to make sure that we know enough about them to keep them from coming out here to see if they've got anything good to offer, maybe genetically. We certainly know they have heavy metals here, which uh, are kind of rare in the rest of the galaxy, the galactic neighborhood. But I think they'd want to make sure that, uh, A, they had graduate students doing their theses here, developments in primitive societies, what not to do to move forward, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> you know, I, I think there are a lot of things they would think. They would say that, look, uh, obviously these guys' attitudes are shoot first, ask questions later. We're zipping along way back in 52, doing our thing, checking them out, and they're trying to shoot us down. These guys are nuts. You know, you don't uh, sting an elephant when he can stamp on you. They're lucky we're such nice guys. <laughs> you know, so that's one thing, of course. Oh, what about what about now? There are obviously different species of aliens, I'm sure. But but what if Magruder said, by the way, that in the kind of let's just say the lecture, the briefing at the Air War College, his son Merritt said that his father told him that he was told at the briefing that they had identified two different alien species. How? I don't know. Mac Magruder's not around to tell us. But they had identified two different alien species, or three different alien species, I'm sorry. Two of those species were not benign and not benevolent, but they really could kill less, if you know what I mean. They, yeah, yeah. They really did, it's really what you just said. They, you know, they'll send graduate students here. They'll you know, do a surveillance mission. You know, let the ants build their colonies. One species, the military said, was actively hostile. I don't know whether it was a green or a gray or I don't know which was which. But, but supposedly they, they codenamed them different colors, greens, grays, reds, whatever. But they codenamed them different colors. And one of those colors, green or gray, was hostile. And the other color, and this is funny because he saw a flesh-toned creature, was not benevolent but not hostile, neither friend nor foe. Neutral. Neutral. So, Clinical. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, so, so we know there were different kinds of creatures. I wonder if, yes, there are some saying we, we really got to box these guys in because these guys are a pestilence just in themselves, keep them off the other planets because they'll just fight wars and wreck them the way they've wrecked their own planet, or... Are we dealing with, is this a natural evolutionary stage? Are we in the galactic terrible twos, in other words, where this is some, uh, some, uh, some kind of a great crisis and that a species just like a child, an Ericksonian crisis, a species just like a child has to get beyond the crisis to mature. If the child doesn't get beyond the Ericksonian crisis, 
in the terrible twos, well, you know, it becomes a serial killer. If the child gets behind it, it becomes fully integrated onto its next crisis. But the point is, is that where we are? What a question. Uh, what a question. I think it's a question a that poses. To raise for the next time. That's right. You, you know, this is the world's greatest kind of interview one could do. I'll tell you, take Bill Burns and you take Stan Friedman. They don't have to be in the same room, and they're not, because Bill's at his home in California and Stanton is, is at his home in Canada. You stick them together virtually or physically and say, guys, just go ahead. And they go. And it's wonderful. It was a great session, very informative, and we hope we can do this again in a few weeks and get up to date on the latest information developments. Bill, tell our folks where they can get more information about the things that you do. You can get more information about UFO Magazine and auto subscription, and if you do, one of the prize columnists is Stanton Friedman every month in UFO Magazine. If you want to read Stanton, order UFO Magazine at www.ufomag.com or call us at 1-888-UFO-6242, 1-888-UFO-6242 for Stanton Friedman every month in UFO Magazine, Rocket Scientist. Okay, Stan, tell us what you have to offer. Well, there's my website, which has all kinds of goodies, uh, including uh, the newest article is Government UFO Lies. It's about 14 pages long. Of course, there wasn't room to cover all the lies. But anyway, the website is www.stantonfriedman.com. That's F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. Uh, I have a radio special, my uh, CD-ROM, UFOs, The Real Story, my book, Crash at Corona, The Definitive Study of the Roswell Incident, and the second edition of Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C, which includes a new chapter debunking all the attempts at debunking the Majestic 12 group. That whole package, only $35, including shipping and handling. They can uh, use PayPal on my website. There's an order blank there. They can order by mail. They can send a check to... Stan Friedman, Post Office Box 958 Holton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N, Maine, which is M-E, 04730-0958. for the three items. That's normally a $47 value. I want to hear from people who know about airplanes being shot down by UFOs and attempts the other way around about people who still know something about Roswell, about people who have stories to tell, like Mac Magruder told his kids. Toll-free number 877-457-0232. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Paracast. Thank you for having us. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, 
the complete dossier. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You know, I kind of wonder here, they were talking so much about the aliens, and I kept the conversation in that vein because it's clear that both Friedman and Burns believe that the UFOs are the result of alien visitations of our world. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'll, for the sake of argument, let that stand. And I was saying to them, okay, how do we look to those aliens because of all the crazy things that are happening here. And right. as you recall, during the last part of the interview, they were suggesting, I think Stan was suggesting, that maybe we're suffering here in our civilization on Earth from the terrible twos. As far as civilization is concerned, you know, we go through this crisis where we do all sorts of crazy, nutty, irrational things. And if we survive through that, then we get to the next stage of development, whatever that is. Who knows? But that's kind of where they're going with this. There was something else that came up, though, that's I find really fascinating about this whole topic, Gene, which is this notion that if these creatures have a way to travel between stars, and we know that the distances between stars are vast, um, if these creatures can do this, there's a good chance that a byproduct of the type of propulsion system that would allow them to do that would effectively give them the ability to move between dimensions. If you can, it's not even the issue of traveling faster than light. It's the issue of bending space and bending time. If you can do that, Gene, that means that all of a sudden, theoretically, you have the ability of moving between dimensions. Now, if that's the case, let's let's play that, that card for just a moment. Doesn't that suggest that there is a possibility that what we think are extraterrestrial creatures are actually interdimensional creatures. Maybe they don't even come from another planet as we think of it. Maybe they come from another planet in an alternate dimension. There's a possibility of that, Gene, and that opens up a whole other can of worms. Well, you know, this goes back many, many years. I was sitting in a hotel room with a former UFO researcher by the name of Alan Greenfield. And I mentioned him because at the time he was one of my closest friends in the entire world. And we would just sit there and talk about UFOs for hours on end. And I don't know what our mindset was that evening. We weren't drinking or anything or <laughs> inhaling any other substances. Yeah, yeah. But we came up with the idea that maybe the UFO entities, whatever they were, came from right. an alternate reality, okay? And mm-hmm. that they weren't extraterrestrials. They simply blinked in or blinked out, beamed in, beamed out, whatever. But however they entered, they came from a reality that occupies the same space on another level. 
of our universe, maybe in a separate universe. But that was the theory that we propounded then. But that gained traction, strangely enough, in the 1970s. And then 80s and 90s and now in the 21st century, we've gone back to the theory that the aliens are from other planets, other star systems, not from alternate realities, other dimensions. Well, hold on a minute. Actually, that's not completely true, Gene. Um, in the past 25 years, there's been this area of physics called string theory that is attempting to explain the, the ultimate nature of physical reality. There's been a lot of research in the area of physics in, in this specific topic. Yes, and but not as far as the UFO field is concerned. I understand where no, you're no, going. No, sure. no, I mean, but as far as the existence of other simultaneous dimensions that go beyond our four dimensions. So we, we now have a pretty good, not I won't say understanding, but we have a pretty good awareness that this is a distinct possibility. And if there are alternate dimensions, it, it stands to reason that there are life forms of some type that exist in those dimensions. And, and again, if you're moving theoretically, and, and, and you know we're, we're in such a strange realm here, but if you're going faster than light, then it would seem like a byproduct of that is that you can break through the limitations of what we consider to be our dimensional boundaries. And again, if that's the case, that actually brings up, Gene, such a wide host of issues that we have to get my friend Mike Miley on the show at some point because he has done a lot of research in this specific area and has some fascinating theories along these lines. It could be that the UFO phenomenon, as, as we know it, is far more complex than we imagine. There is a possibility. One of the things that's clear to me from listening to, um, to Bill and Stanton is that there is so much disinformation floating around, around this topic that's generated from the government, that's generated from people in this field, that it's really hard to get a grasp on what is actually, I won't use the word true, but what is more accurate versus what is clearly disinformation. There, there's something going on. Hey, that's why we're doing the show, right? Indeed. But that's a question that we'll have to raise on future episodes of The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 